Good morning. Always a privilege to open God's Word with my family here at CCC. Uh, March is one of my favorite times of the year, not just because uh, the weather's starting to turn warmer, but of course because I'm a basketball fan and it's March Madness. And uh, I love watching the games like many of you, and I'm sure uh, many of you in this room have also done what I do as well. You've filled out a bracket to show how little you actually really know about college basketball. Uh, according to one estimate, uh, about 70 million brackets are filled in the tournament back. Just a small little kindness of God, a simple little pleasure until your team loses to a 15 seed in the first round. So. But, you know, something that often accompanies the filling out of the bracket, you've had this experience probably, someone sends you a link and they're like, oh, join my bracket challenge and you have to go to cbssports.com or Yahoo or ESPN or wherever and you realize, I don't remember my password from last year when I signed up for my account and you have to go through the dreaded process of tapping onto or clicking onto forgot password and so... Uh, to make sure that your account is not being hacked, uh, a lot of websites have started to use what's called two-factor authentication. Now, that's a kind of big nerd term for something that's actually pretty simple. So that after you've answered one of your challenge questions, they send a code to a separate device to make sure that it's actually you who is requesting access to your account. And that way, no one can hack your account, or at least it says that's a little bit more difficult to do that. So this idea of two-factor authentication is something that is a good thing when it comes to the tech world. And in our passage this morning, we will see a similar dynamic, a sort of two-factor authentication. That brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. That's our passage this morning. I invite you to turn there. And as you're doing that, it's always good to be reminded of the larger context so we're not just sort of dropping in to the middle of, the, of, of this long letter that Paul wrote. Up through uh, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul has been uh, explaining himself in terms of accusations that were being made about him that he was either wishy-washy or couldn't be trusted because he changed his plans. And then... Starting in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes a long section to defend his apostolic ministry, and that starts in chapter 2, verse 14, is going to go all the way through the beginning of chapter 7. And in that last passage last week, we saw that Paul explains how God worked through him to advance the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere he goes. And using the imagery of this Roman triumphal parade, he explained that the preaching of the gospel provokes some to respond in faith and others to reject that, that those who respond in faith experience life and those who reject the gospel experience death. And he ends that paragraph by stressing that he and his ministry co-workers have been commissioned by God to speak his word, unlike others who were claiming to speak for God but were instead seeking their own financial gain. And so that distinction raises this very legitimate question, how do we know what an authentic work of God looks like? 
So just like in Paul's day, of course, there are plenty of people today who claim to speak for God. So how do we today distinguish between a true work of God and a false one? How can we authenticate what God, that God is genuinely at work and distinguish that from the cheap imitation that Satan loves to deceive us with? So what we'll see in this passage is that God uses a form of two-factor authentication when it comes to showing the genuineness of His work in a person's life. So let's look at the first layer of God's two-factor authentication found in verses 1 through 3, where we will see that God writes a better letter on a better surface. So follow along with me now as I read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul had ended chapter 2 by stressing that he and his ministry co-workers had been commissioned by God to speak in the power of Christ. And to make sure that he is not misunderstood as bragging, he jokingly asks the Corinthians if they need letters of recommendation to validate these claims. Now, in the ancient world, letters of recommendation were uh, similar in one sense to how they function today. These traveling teachers would go from city to city, and they would come into town, and they'd try to drum up a big crowd and dazzle people with their rhetoric and their uh, dynamic personality. And oftentimes, they'd make good money doing this. And so, once the money would dry up, they'd move on to another town. And part of the way that they would work the system was to try to get a prominent person in the, in the town to write a letter of recommendation to someone they knew in the next town. And that person would give them a sort of entry point into that new community. And Paul insists, look, I don't need anyone's letter of recommendation because I've got a far better kind of letter. The transformed lives of the Corinthians themselves. And so to help us see how far superior that kind of letter is to a written letter of recommendation, we're going to see four things that Paul tells us about this better letter from this section. So four things about this better letter. First, it's written on our hearts. Paul says that through the work of the gospel, the Corinthians have become so dear to him that they are inscribed on his own heart. He's not like one of these traveling teachers who blows into town, does, does his thing for the money, and then leaves. In fact, listen to what Paul is going to say just later in this letter. I'll read it for you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. Paul writes, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. 
I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride across the dividing lines of race and gender and socioeconomic status and cultural background and even sports team loyalties. All of these silly, ultimately dividing lines that humanity bases itself on, God creates unity across through the gospel. And that is a work of God himself. Second, this kind of letter, this better letter, is known and read by all people. One of the limitations of a letter of recommendation is that it's read by the recipient and maybe a small number of other people. But the transformed lives of the Corinthians were observable by everyone that they encountered. And Paul hints at this back in chapter, uh, back in chapter 6 of his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, after listing a whole series of sinful activities and behaviors and patterns of life that characterized the Corinthians, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The transformed lives of believers are the kind of letter that can be seen by everyone. It doesn't require a person to be able to read. And unlike a written letter that would need to be carried and carefully preserved, the transformed life of the Christian is on display for everyone to see. Third, this letter is written with the Spirit and not ink. So another limitation of the letter of recommendation is that it's written with ink. And even the best and most expensive kinds of inks fade over time. By contrast, our transformed lives are written by the Spirit of God. And what He writes will never fade. In fact, over time, the Spirit's transformation of our lives only makes His penmanship more evident and stand out more dramatically. Fourth thing about this letter is that it's written on human hearts rather than stone tablets. Now, you might think, well, didn't Paul already say that? No, he made a different point earlier about the letter being written on his heart. Here, Paul has something else in view. You see, when God made his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, he gave the words of the Ten Commandments on stone tablets to Moses to give to the people. But the prophets eventually came along and promised a day when God would write his laws on the hearts of his people. So listen to what God says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, about this new covenant that he would make with his people. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says something similar in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk 
in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, when God gave Israel the law, it was on stone tablets. It worked outside of a person. It could, it could promise blessing for obedience, and it could threaten condemnation or judgment for disobedience, but it was constantly working from the outside. And the problem with that is it would encounter human hearts in rebellion against God. We come into this world as rebels against God, and when we hear His law, our natural instinct is to say, I'm not doing that. Or if it's saying, don't do this, it's like, okay, I'm going to do that. That's our natural bent. You've seen this with children, no doubt, right? You tell them, don't touch that. And the first thing I want to do is go and touch it, right? But it's in our, all of our human hearts to have that reaction of, well, who, who are you to tell me what to do? Who is God to tell me what to do? And unless something supernatural happens, that's our disposition, that's our bent. But see, through the gospel, something supernatural does happen. God overcomes our rebellion against Him. And through that new covenant that we celebrated in communion this morning, through His death and resurrection, He transforms us from rebels who resist submitting to His commands to sons and daughters who delight to do what God commands. He gives us both the power and the desire to obey Him because God's Spirit is at work inside of us to transform us. And so, one question I have for you this morning is this. Has that been your experience? Can you point to specific ways that God's Spirit has changed you? Can you identify specific things that you used to think, believe, desire, or do that God has turned you away from to pursue obedience. I think one of the common responses that we might find as we talk with other people about the gospel, and this was my experience on staff with Campus Crusade for eight years, is you encounter people who will say things like, oh, I prayed a prayer when I was eight at a youth retreat or something like that. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God doesn't save people that way. He does, absolutely. But I also know that some people can have that kind of experience and it never changes them. It never transforms them. And so it raises the very serious question of, did you actually put your trust in Jesus or not? So one of the questions that I enjoy asking people in these kind of conversations is, can you give me an example of, what, of a way that God has changed your life? That Jesus has changed your life. And if that person can, forgiveness of sins is the same faith that the Spirit uses to change us, to make us a new creation. So, the first way that God authenticates His work is through the transformed lives of His people. He writes a better letter on a better surface. So now let's look at the second way that God authenticates His work. That's found in verses 4 through 6, where we will see that God gives a better sufficiency 
through a better covenant. God gives a better sufficiency through a better covenant. Let's read verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the fact that God transforms people through the faithful preaching and sharing of the gospel gives Paul confidence to boldly proclaim that good news no matter the circumstance he faces. Because God is the one who works in and through him, he has confidence in the presence of God. And that confidence comes from God through Jesus. And Paul has this confidence not because there's anything special about Paul, but because there's everything special about Jesus. See, Paul's not presenting himself as, as one of these people who walks around exuding self-confidence. We've all been around people like that. People who are so confident in their abilities, their wisdom, their experience, their talents. And these people tend to think that they are all that and then some. And those people, rather than smell like the sweet aroma of Christ, actually have the stench of arrogance about them. You see, we all know people like that, but we also know people at the other end of the spectrum, don't we, who are so down on themselves that they are constantly thinking, there's nothing good about me, there's no value to me, I'm nothing, I have nothing to offer. And friends, that's also a form of pride, by the way. It's just a different manifestation of pride. So then what is the solution? Well, the solution is found in this text in this idea of sufficiency. If you're reading from other translations, besides the ESV, you might see the term uh, competence or adequacy, and all those are perfectly good translations. So uh, as I'm going to use the term sufficiency as we talk, but you can sort of fill in the blank if your translation uses a different word. And since this concept really dominates verses 5 and 6, we're going to dig in a little bit deeper and look at this idea of sufficiency from three different angles. First, we're going to look at the nature of sufficiency. In other words, what is it? So first, the nature of sufficiency. We actually saw this language back in chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul first raised this question of who is sufficient to be a fragrance of Christ. And so in the most basic sense, sufficiency has to do with having the necessary qualifications to complete a task or to do a job or to complete a role. So if we're looking at job listings, for example, you'll see regularly a list of the applicant must have these sets of skills and experience, etc. Now, more broadly, when we talk about this idea of sufficiency, we often tie it to the idea of worth or value or being good enough, which is something we'll circle back to here in just a moment. So that's the nature of sufficiency. Let's look secondly at the source of our sufficiency. We live in a culture 
that constantly invites us to look inward within ourselves to find our sufficiency, our worth, and our value. Scholars have begun to use the phrase expressive individualism to capture this reality. And it simply means that people find meaning, significance, value by looking inside of themselves and giving expression to their own feelings and desires. And that enables them to be their most authentic self. Uh, Philosopher Charles Taylor described this culture of sufficiency, sorry, culture of authenticity that we all live in like this. Each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that it's important to find and live out one's own as against, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Now, just to be clear, Taylor is not, not endorsing this. He's merely describing this reality. And folks, it's all in the air we breathe, the water we drink. It's part of our cultural context. As a lighthearted example of this, some of you might be old enough to remember the old Saturday Night Live skit with Stuart Smalley. Some of you might remember this. He was this uh, individual who lacked any measure of self-confidence and uh, was very down on himself. And so he, he had this mantra that he would look into the mirror and every day he would repeat this little mantra. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. As if this was going to be the source of his sufficiency, his value, his worth. And we see this idea all over the place. In fact, we see it in what I like to refer to as the gospel according to Disney. Where the message is regularly along the lines of, follow your heart. Because that's the path to finding your worth, your sufficiency, your value, and ultimately your true self. Friends, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. But it is a lie from the pit. It's a lie. Because ultimately, our worth, our value, our sufficiency is not something we look inward to discover, but it's something that we look outward to and to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. The place to look for our sufficiency, for our value, for our importance, ultimately, in those senses, is God himself. Yes, we are made in his image, but ultimately, the place for us to find our significance, our value, our confidence, our, our, our significance and worth is not in ourselves. It's not in our accomplishments. It's not in our experiences. It's not in seeking the approval of others. All of those paths are dead ends. All of them. If you're looking to find your worth, your value, your sufficiency in those paths, they will lead to destruction, to death. Because we were designed to find our worth, our value, and our sufficiency in Christ, in the person of Christ. All of those other forms that you're, that you're looking for, whether it's through 
your experiences, whether it's through your accomplishments, or whether it's the approval of others. All of those are a form of slavery. They are slavery because there's always going to be something else to accomplish. There's always going to be another experience to have. There's always going to be someone else's approval to win or to gain. All of those paths are going to disappoint you, are going to lead to frustration, and they can never deliver on what they promise. Because our sufficiency is not grounded in what we do, but who we know. Let me say that again. Our sufficiency is not grounded in what we do or what we find in ourselves, but in who we know. And only when we realize that and live like that can we find the true freedom that comes from what Christ died to accomplish for us. Now lastly, we need to look at the result of our sufficiency here. Look again with me at verse 6 here in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul writes that God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The result of God making us sufficient is that we are made ministers or servants of the new covenant that Jesus sealed with his death and his resurrection. Now, don't get hung up on the term ministers here. He is not just talking about people who are called into vocational ministry. All of us as believers have a priestly role to mediate God's presence no matter where he takes us. And one of the ways that we do that is by sharing the good news of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Our sufficiency to communicate the good news is not rooted in ourselves, but in the God who calls us to share the good news. And brothers and sisters, I I want to linger here for a moment because I think we can often hesitate to share the gospel because we don't think we know enough about the Bible or we don't know how to answer certain questions that we worry about people will raise. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's absolutely a place for equipping yourself and having a response ready to questions you could anticipate. There's absolutely a place for that. But your sufficiency is not grounded in that kind of training. Your sufficiency to share the good news is grounded in who you know, not what you know. You see, if, if you were to ask me about my wife, I don't need an advanced degree in the psychology of human behavior to tell you how much I enjoy my wife, how much she brings joy and delight to me. I don't need an advanced degree. Why? Because I know her. I've experienced her. The same is true of maybe a roommate or a best friend because you have this standing experience with them that puts you in a place to talk about how great that person is. Friends, you know the God of the universe. 
You know Jesus, the one who has changed you, has transformed you, has made you a new creation. And you, based on knowing him, are more than sufficient to tell others about the good news of what he's done for you and call them to experience that life-transforming experience with Jesus. Now, here in this text, Paul again draws this contrast between the covenant that God made with Israel and the new covenant that we experience. So that old covenant characterized by the fact it was written on those stone tablets. It spoke from the outside trying to uh, promise blessing and warn judgment. But what a remarkable difference the new covenant has. Because that letter could ultimately only kill because no one can live up to that law. The Spirit gives life. You see, the Spirit works on the inside, and He transforms us, giving us the desire and the power to obey. And it promises blessing, not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of Jesus' obedience. And on the basis of Him suffering the punishment that you and I deserved for our disobedience. So the second way that God authenticates his work is by giving us a better sufficiency through a better covenant. So we started this morning by asking, what, how do we know what an authentic work of God looks like? And what we've seen this morning is that God authenticates his work by his spirit. And he does it with two, in two particular ways. First, he writes a better letter on a better surface. And he secondly gives a better sufficiency through a better covenant. Now for some of you listening, perhaps your heart was as hard as those stone tablets when you came in this morning. You hear what God says and you think, he has no right to tell me how to live. I need to be true to myself and find my own authentic self and figure out how I think I should live. Friends, that is the path of death. It does not bring freedom. It brings slavery. But the good news is that Jesus offers you freedom. Freedom from that slavery. Freedom from the path of destruction. And today is the day to turn away from that path of destruction and to embrace the Savior who has his arms wide open for you. Maybe others of you came in this morning and you're thinking, I'm so messed up that there's no way God can change me. Or maybe you're thinking, I need to clean up my own life before I ever come to God. That's backwards. You don't clean up your life and then come to God. You surrender your life to God through Jesus Christ and say, Lord, change me. Forgive me for my sins and change me into the kind of person you want me to be. And he invites you today. Don't wait. If this last year has taught us anything, it's that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Don't wait. Don't assume, I can put this off. I can wait. It's not, it's not urgent. No, it is urgent. Turn your life to Christ today. And for those of us who've already put our trust in Christ We need to remember that our worth, 
our value, our sufficiency is not rooted in accomplishments. It's not rooted in our experiences. And it's not rooted in what others say or think about us. It's rooted in the unshakable truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He's the one that is transforming us by his spirit and continuing to change us on a daily basis. And friends, I know that we all have days where it doesn't feel like that's happening. But God's spirit is working in our lives. You see, he's making us more like our Savior, Jesus. And who could write a better letter than Jesus Christ himself? You see, he's writing that letter on our hearts with nail-scarred hands that were strapped and nailed to a Roman cross. And above him hung a sign that mockingly referred to him as, this is the king of the Jews. And in addition to that charge, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 tells us that it was all of our trespasses that kept him on that cross. And that on that cross, Jesus was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's what Christ set aside by nailing it to the cross. The condemnation that the letter of the law brings to us has been solved by the obedience and the death and the resurrection of our Savior. Every single sin we've ever committed, every single breaking of God's law, and it's on that basis that Christ is able to write a better letter on our hearts. Because on the cross, he suffered the condemnation that we deserved for our disobedience. And rather than perishable ink, he writes his laws on our hearts with his very own life-giving spirit. So we can live a life that's transformed to reflect the beauty of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your death on the cross to give us the new covenant. And thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for that incredible gift. And Lord, I pray for those who are listening today who do not know you, that your spirit would break through that hard heart and give life. And I pray that you would work in our hearts who already know you to give us renewed joy, renewed delight, and ultimately renewed spirit-empowered obedience to you. We know we're not sufficient for these things in our own strength, but we know the one who is sufficient. And we thank you for his great love for us. In his name, amen.